0: Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, second year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Toshi. Hi. Fourth year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. DM Wen. Hi, DM. Hi, Dr. Parks. And second year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan not just Dr. Park. <laughs> <laughs> the views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services or UCR's School of Medicine. Well you joined us for a great show tonight. We're going to talk about the interesting parallels between COVID-19 and HIV-AIDS and we have a very full house of guest speakers uh, and uh, um, uh, guests that have come to very knowledgeable in to, to talk about this and I you know because there's uh, there's several of you I, w- I would like you to just kind of go around and you can just introduce yourself give a brief kind of description of, of uh, you know what would led you to, to being wanting to join this conversation and I appreciate it all so why don't we start with uh, uh, Dr. Loftus Sure. So
1: I'm Dr. Richard Loftus. I'm a full clinical professor of medicine at UC Riverside and was the founding associate program director of the internal medicine residency at Eisenhower Health in Rancho Mirage, California. I have recently moved to my new position at Bassett Medical Center in upstate New York in the beautiful Catskills uh, with uh, an affiliation with Columbia University, which is one of my old alma maters. Um, So uh, my... um, position uh, when uh, COVID started was as a hospitalist and as an instructor of medicine and as an AIDS researcher. Um, By background, I did all my medical training, school, residency, fellowship in HIV care at UCSF. Uh, But prior to all of that, I was a member of ACT UP New York and the Treatment Action Group in New York. Um, So I, I, I came into medicine as somebody who was an AIDS activist first. Um, so I had kind of an activist view of things. And I have to say, the AIDS crisis is why I'm a doctor and not a cartoonist, literally. Um, and you were so also was,
2: involved in COVID vaccine research as well, right?
1: That's right. So I, you know, uh, one of the things I do in Palm Springs is I run a private research uh, office. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the principal investigators and founders, uh, Palm Tree Clinical Research. So we did some work on COVID-related um, projects, including um, some therapies for COVID. And we did some studies you know, at Eisenhower and also in the community. Um, and uh, so that, that also, you know, so I have, I have a science connection to COVID as well. Thanks.
0: Uh, Jeff.
3: Yeah, hello, I'm Jeff Taylor, director and co-founder with Dr. Loftus of the HIV and Aging Research Pro- Project in Palm Springs, California. And uh, we study HIV and aging issues, trying to improve the quality of life for long-term HIV survivors. And I was one of the early adopters of HIV back in the ni- 1981, 82, infected early, and kind of lived the entire pandemic. So this is certainly not my first time at a pandemic rodeo. And, you know, got very sick, you know, ran the whole gamut, um, got very sick, uh, nearly died, um, got involved in clinical research as a guinea pig because I was the only way at the time to get access to research. It was very limited. It's very different than it is today, uh, thanks to... In the work of the earlier activists, um, it's changed dramatically. But, you know, I, I moved to California and I became very involved at the national level working with the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, the AIDS Millicent Consortium, and now with some of the NIH funded HIV Cure um, research collaboratories. So I've had a, a long history of that. And here in Palm Springs, um, what we do at the HARP is to educate both the public, the uh, people living with HIV, as well as uh, providers. and. Uh, that's how I work with Dr. Loftus on a lot of these, uh, these projects and got involved in the, uh, the COVID response here. So thank you for having me.
0: Great, thanks for joining us, Jeff. Well, I, why don't we start the conversation with uh, you, Richard. Uh, just say how your thinking evolved from when COVID-19 began and uh, how you were starting to see some parallels and what were those? For sure.
1: So, um, I, in fact, I remember a moment um, you know, if they ever make a film of my experience, you know, I guess I have my mental film. This will be one of the first scenes. Jeff will remember this. We hold a, a monthly lecture for local HIV patients on HIV topics. And in January of 2020, uh, my science team was giving an update on some of uh, our research studies that, that were, we were doing on HIV. And one of the audience members asked about whether I was concerned about this COVID thing. And I said, right now, I'm actually more worried about the annual influenza epidemic than I am with COVID. And of course, that was because what I understood about COVID at that point was that it was an analog to SARS, and SARS, if people remember, kind of burned itself out. We don't have ongoing SARS one cases anymore, um, and there are reasons for that. So I expected that, even though you know we were starting to see cases in the United States, in Washington State. I anticipated that this infection, like what happened with SARS-1 in Toronto would burn itself out. And so I memorably actually said at that lecture, I I think we we should be more worried about influenza. And then (laughs) in late February, Trevor Bedford of University of Washington put out an analysis on med Twitter that he estimated there were something like 1200 people in the state of Washington who probably had been infected with COVID-19. And the reason he said this is because he looked at the genetics of two documented cases, and there was enough genetic difference between them that he estimated it would have taken 1,200 people's worth of replication to get those two different isolates. Um, He has since actually retracted that analysis and thinks that he just got two different introductions of virus. But at the time, he assumed that one of the cases had something to do with the other, that they were transmitted connected. And so he believed that Uh, There were about 1,200 people in Washington State who had COVID at the end of February. And let's remember, there were no testing technologies available to identify who had COVID. And I thought to myself, oh, Seattle area, where the snowbirds who come (laughs) to winter in Palm Springs come from. And I realized these people were getting in cars and getting on airplanes and going all over the place, including coming to the Coachella Valley. And I realized We've got people probably in the Valley right this second who have COVID, and we don't have any ability to test them, and we don't have any treatments, and this is spread by air. And by this point, we had realized that it could be spread by people who had no visible symptoms, unlike SARS-1, where you knew who to put in isolation because they, were, they had the sniffles and a cough. The dangerous thing about COVID was it could spread from people who didn't even know they had it. So I I immediately put a poster up on my office saying, residents, have you seen COVID-19 and outlined the important points about it from the New England Journal article um, that had come out. And, you know, um, sure enough, within eight days, we had our first identified COVID case at the hospital. um, And we wound up being a hotspot within the hotspot of Riverside County, if people remember in the Inland Empire where we are. Um, But I... uh, I, I in fact, admitted the lady who turned out to be our first COVID case and she'd been admitted with what turned out to be a leukemia. She went to skilled nursing after we diagnosed her to recover from her hospital stay and she came back with a dry cough and a fever. One of my night colleagues who, thank goodness, was as much a nerd about COVID as I was and knew what to look for, you know, admitted her that night. Um, I came back on the day service. He got a call from an Italian radiologist in the middle of the night who was reading our x-ray scans, you know, across the ocean Mm -hmm. as they do. And he said, can you tell me about this patient that you sent me the CT of? And my colleague, uh, Dr. Zaharakis said, well, she's came from from a skilled nursing center. She's got a dry cough and a fever. And he said, well, I hate to tell you, but I've seen this chest CT, you know, dozens and dozens of times by this point, this is COVID-19. And that was how our first case got diagnosed. Wow. And I think for me, you know, first of all, I think as somebody who, you know, worked at the Gladstone Institute of Virology and Immunology at UCSF, I worked in a biohazard three lab. So I, I had to suit up to work with virus in a bench laboratory and had worked in clinical trials for HIV, of course. So as a scientist, I kind of knew how bad this could get. And, um, you know, I think for a lot of lay people, uh, that movie with Gwyneth Paltrow in it, um, what was it? Contagion? Um, you know, I
2: think
1: so, yeah. yeah, I think that was, you know, for a lot of folks that was like their, their understanding of, of what COVID might look like, or they noticed afterwards that it sure looked like that movie. I'd never seen the film, but I knew kind of what to expect. And, um, I think, you know, it's funny. I, my residents oftentimes in the first two months kept expressing surprise at how I seemed to anticipate everything that was going to happen. And I explained to them, well, first of all, pandemics are a math formula. So it's, they're very predictable. And labs like the one I worked in have been running simulations of you know, virus acts. You know, we thought it'd be a flu, not a coronavirus, but we, we kind of knew what this would look like on a computer simulation. So that was part of how I was ready for it. Um, but I, I think you know, what I saw right away was a big, big denial or a, a sort of a lack of, of understanding exactly how bad this was going to be. Um, And I think that was one of the reasons why I had sort of a sinking feeling for most of the month of March of 2020, uh, because I I really felt like we were gonna have to explain to a lot of people what was coming and what we needed to do to be ready for it. For me though, fortunately, because of the HIV researchers, clinicians, and activists like Jeff in our Coachella Valley, I had a ready posse of people who didn't need any explaining as to what it meant that we were in a pandemic. They had been to the pandemic rodeo yeah, before as Jeff referenced. And so we got to business right away doing some of the things that helped our community cope. Um, but I, I would say, you know, for me, the big four ways that you know, COVID looked like AIDS to me over the ensuing six months was it disproportionately affected marginalized communities and minorities. That was true in AIDS. It's true in COVID. It was especially true in the states, and it's also true globally. The stigma, uh, you know, we know that like you know there've been uh, there was stigma towards the minority communities that were experiencing HIV at the beginning of that pandemic. We certainly had minority communities stigmatized as being the source of the pandemic. The anti-Asian violence that we've seen, for example, that was a second aspect. The sort of um, disinformation and denialism. You know, notoriously, Ronald Reagan didn't talk about AIDS for four years uh, before he finally started to admit that it was killing, you know, thousands and thousands of Americans, you know, and President Trump likewise, you know, was, you know, minimizing how bad this was going to be, even though he already knew how bad it was going to be. He was saying something else to the public. So that's a third way. And then just the politicization of public health, you know, using condoms and, you know, um, putting out uh, sex education was, a hot button issue politically in the AIDS pandemic. And likewise in COVID, you know the masking thing got political when it shouldn't have been and that compromised our public health response. So those were sort of the bad ways that this reminded me of the old days of AIDS. Um, I think we could later talk about some of the silver linings or ways that AIDS prepared us for COVID that actually helped us, um, but maybe I'll turn it over to Jeff and have him talk about some of the ways our community responded because of our experience in AIDS.
3: Sure. Well, I think, you know, what I was struck by at the beginning was suddenly there was this massive uh, flow of information. People were struggling to drink from the fire hose of information that was coming out. And that was a dramatic difference from the early days of HIV because that was pre-internet. You know, we'd never seen a virus like this before. It took them years to actually figure out what it was and to test for it. And here everything was happening in hyperspeed. And, you know, we didn't have the internet and, um, you know, it just was completely different in that way, and it was a real struggle. And it's like, okay, we need to wrap our heads around what's happening. How do we do this? As Rick mentioned, we already had um, you know monthly meetings with HIV providers, who, are, of course, ID docs were the ones on the front line who have a the training and b the experience to deal with the pandemic. So we immediately put together COVID rounds every week and just started getting together and just started trading information, journal articles, uh, people go over the statistics. You know, where's the virus? Um, in the va- here in the valley, how fast is it spreading, what are the, what's the death rate and so forth. And we had uh, you know, community people step up and, and start crunching numbers for us and doing things like that. So it really was a grassroots community effort in collaboration with, with doctors and researchers. And then you know, bringing in people from UCSF who were on the front lines with the NIH funded um, treatment research that was happening. And uh, Eisenhower became a site for some of that. So it really was just kind of putting things together that we already knew how to do to make it happen. And then in a parallel, you know, we also uh, our group also does HIV patient education and as Rick mentioned, you know, that came up early in January and, and by March, people were in a panic and it was interesting. There was a lot of early on, there was a lot of information about, well, perhaps some of the HIV meds because they're antivirals would be effective against uh, the coronavirus, uh, maybe the slightly dampened immune system that people with HIV have would be an advantage. You know, are we gonna be a privileged group, et cetera? So really having to kind of go through all those things one by one, um, um, debunk some of the myths and, and give people correct information. But it was really gratifying because people living with HIV, you know, as Rick's just like Rick, you know, realize what they were in in for and they know how to access information. So they weren't being led astray by all the, uh, the crazy myths and, and things floating around. And, you know, were the first to use the mask and do the social distancing and do everything they needed to do. Um, and although it caused you know, some research into PTSD from the pandemic, they had coping skills. If they made it this far after 40 years of HIV, they knew what to do with another pandemic that, you know, everybody expected would burn itself out in a, in a year or two. It's not going to be this horrific decades-long um, death march that, that AIDS became, unfortunately.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about the parallels between COVID-19 and HIV-AIDS. With uh, Dr. Richard Loftus and activist uh, Jeff Taylor, and uh, yeah, and, and, and Alan, you have a question. Thanks, um, thanks, Aaron. So I'm
2: curious, and this is a tiny bit off of the the line we were on, but I think this is interesting in terms of some crunchy uh, sort of factors that maybe the two of you are privy to about COVID that. Um, non-specialists and the general public don't know about. And we're, we're a podcast that you know, largely uh, um, caters to kind of lay folks. You mentioned that SARS um, burned itself out and maybe even that you had some knowledge that this wouldn't burn itself out like SARS. How did SARS burn itself out? How does a pandemic burn itself out? And why, what factors about SARS made it so it could burn itself out? And why did COVID not burn itself out?
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And I think the short answer is that because in SARS, first of all, um, you know, it, it, it took down a lot of people in East Asia before it finally was contained, but they had learned what to do. And so when it got introduced into North America and they were dealing with it in Toronto and a little bit in the state of Ohio, which was one of the US states that did a lot of smart things really fast um, with uh, Governor DeWine, uh, who remembered what happened during SARS. But the, the difference was that SARS is only contagious in people that have visible symptoms. So it's very easy to tell who needs to be put in an isolation room so they don't infect anybody. If you've got the sniffles or a cough, you're in isolation because you can spread that virus. And if you feel fine and have no symptoms, don't have it. What was scary about COVID, and which we had you know figured out by the time you know January, February rolled around was you know, after the lecture where I said, I'm not as worried about it, was that it could be spread by people who had no symptoms at all. And, you know, initially we were able to figure out that they they were probably contagious at least 48 hours. And in fact, that was when they were the most contagious and they had no sense that they had it. And so they were capable then, you know, they were spreading, each case was on average spreading it to two or three other people. Well, that's a recipe for exponential growth. And there's nothing that gets a virologist more bug-eyed in a hurry than a virus that spreads by exponential growth. I mean, I would say that term and like most people would look at me like, that's what are you saying? Like, that doesn't mean anything. And what I mean is like, it's quiet, it's quiet, it's quiet. And boom, you've got hundreds of people critically sick in a real hurry and you're overwhelmed. You go from nothing to overwhelming in almost no time at all. And it boggles the mind. And that's that's what I understood was possible with a virus that could spread to lots of people before they even realized they were sick. And it didn't even need to be something that made most of them seriously sick. I mean, the statistics for COVID on average is about 1% of people wind up lethally sick from it. So 99% of people are fine. In fact, you heard people say, oh, we don't need to worry about it. It only kills 1% of people. Multiply it by tens of millions of people because this country is full of 330 million humans that have no immunity to this virus. This isn't like the other head colds. None of us have any immunity to this. So we're all 100% susceptible to it. It can get into tens of millions of us, right? So you go to a grocery store and somebody's got COVID, they're going to spread it. And we saw that happen again and again. I mean, by this point, the state's already had tons of publications from China. We had a beautiful you know, uh, article that uh, put was put in the Journal of Emerging Infection Diseases that showed how in Guangzhou, a bunch of families at different dinner tables in a restaurant got infected because COVID came through the air system. In so fact, incredible. the scientists and doctors and the medical students of UC Riverside sent that paper to our board of supervisors in May, begging them not to reverse the public health orders that were protecting the community and said you're being lobbied by the restaurants to reopen and it is way too soon. And in fact, restaurants are a good way to spread COVID. But we watched them with horror, make Dr. Kaiser reverse the public health orders anyway. And that was another one of those moments where I was like, it's all happening all over again.
2: Dr. Laptis, sorry, could I just jump in? I'm really interested to hear you guys, you you were involved with AIDS, you were involved with COVID and what was happening. Can I just hear your thoughts on Fauci?
3: Oh, Tony Fauci uh, has, has a long history and, you know, he became front page news, but he was front page news back then, especially for people who were on the front lines of the the pandemic. And he was, a you know, kind of a mid-career virologist at the NIH. And, you know, he's very woke today, but he's uh, he wasn't then. And and it was the HIV activist from a group called ACT UP, AIDS activist to, to unleash power, who really employed um, guerrilla... Um, three tactics to get the attention of people at the nih and the government wall street they shut down wall street things like that so they they targeted him and and brought him kicking and screaming to the table and sat down with people like Peter Staley. And there's a great interview between the two of them talking about, you know, how he got religion around HIV and began to see what it meant to the people with the virus and what needed to happen and started listening because he was not like that before. So he's a perfect example of you can teach people new tricks and it, it saves lives. And lo and behold, 40 years later, he had he been allowed to, he could have saved the country much sooner than he did.
1: Yeah, in fact, I I would chime in to what Jeff just said. And and we used to joke that, you know, part of why Tony Fauci was such a brilliant leader during COVID is because he'd been to the ACT UP finishing school. (laughs) the ACT UP activists kind of put him through the ringer to get him to listen to people who were affected by the previous pandemic disease. And he understood the importance of listening. He understood the importance of involving the community. He understood the importance of dispelling misinformation. And I think all of those experiences with the community affected by the last pandemic made him a better leader during this pandemic.
3: What really stands out to me, actually, Dr. Lictus and Dr. Taylor, is basically it sounds like you said this, you know, this followed an algorithm for you. And for me, when the pandemic started, it caused a lot of fear, right? Because we saw how AIDS like decimated um, kind of our patients, but also given the fact that this was a new variant, there was also a lot of fear that it would decimate our healthcare system. Um, and then so attendings and you know people started wearing scrubs. We were told to like change in our cars and like not go into our houses. Like we were told to like separate from our families like immediately. Um, and I, it
0: was really overwhelming. Like how did you guys deal with that?
1: Well, I can for myself, I can say that you know, uh, I had the experience of having to suit up, to have separate clothes in where I worked and, and my home because I worked in a biohazard laboratory. So I actually, with the help of my spouse, I set up an entire decontamination area in my home. We had like a separate area on the other side of our garage. I had ultraviolet lights to decontaminate my car keys. And because at that time, we didn't know if surfaces could transmit COVID. And so I had three separate sets of clothing, one inside the hospital, one in my car between the places and a separate set of clothing at my house. I put all my gear in an ultraviolet box that I built to decontaminate my stuff. You know, I I did not enter the house until I'd showered. You know, it was, and you know, there were other physicians I know on the front lines who... You know, would you know? One one doctor camped out in his garage and wouldn't go inside the house where his wife and children were because he wasn't sure if he would transmit it. So yes, there was this heavy burden of not completely knowing, how, you know, how to protect our families uh, that I think we all carried as frontline providers. But I think for me, having been a scientist in a bench laboratory and having had to wear a spacesuit essentially to work with a virus, I thought, well, this is just like the biohazard lab, except the entire world is now the, the, you know, biohazard lab and, you know, my house is my one safe place. So, you know, that was why, for example, I did not eat lunch in the cafeteria after Trevor Bedford's paper. I, you know, would only eat in a sleep room on the other side of the hospital on a floor with no patients. And, you know, I was in the room by myself and I would only take off my mask to eat and drink in there. I did not even drink water in the other parts of the hospital. Uh, because I was so concerned about contracting it. As as time went on, we learned more what things were dangerous what things weren't. But that was my experience. I don't know what Jeff experienced thinking about it as a community member.
0: Well, I mean, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I got to ask a controversial question here because I cannot let this show go by without asking something controversial. I just, this is in my DNA. And so I want to kind of go over it to how things changed. Comparing AIDS and COVID nineteen, so yeah, you mentioned ACT UP, uh, crucial, crucial uh, action by them, and I don't, I, I, I can't even think of, of, of getting our act together without ACT UP, uh, uh, so speaks, But I want to kind of ask you both, it, it, thinking of the lessons that we learned in the AIDS pandemic, it's there seems to be something going on with conservative folks, where there they will um interfere alter um prevent is that a, is that is it fair to say that i think it it's, might be controversial but i think it's fair to say that the um yeah it, yeah the 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 um treatment um education prevention of a pandemic uh, management of it now what kinds of uh lessons do we learn from aids that now we can now apply in this COVID 19 because we're, we're seeing the same thing conservative folks are not wanting to get vaccinated. They're not wanting to wear masks. They're wanting to um, um, increase stigma and, and well. And let's say, Aaron. Let's
2: say the loudest conservative folks and at the moment, and the conservative folks under Trump, particularly, but probably
0: no. Let's no no. Let's not say that because let me make my point. It's that the 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 biggest percentage of folks that are involved in this are conservative folks are trump supporters so let's just say that it's not political it's not a political environment it's not only uh the the loudest people the, the by studies we're we're knowing by surveys that the the the, the folks that are, the that make up the greatest percentage of people that don't want the vaccination and uh, i made my point early, but i just want i want jeff and richard I, I want you to kind of respond to that is that okay
3: well i think it all began with um dropping the ball and then scapegoating and demonizing other people and pointing figures in other directions to uh, kind of cover up what they didn't do. It certainly happened in HIV. They politicized and it happened again um, this time with the CDC. And they, they, they completely dropped the ball. They were terrified of a new conservative administration not funding what they wanted to do because it was, you know, mostly gay people. Gay people, IDUs and Haitians were the first groups identified, as Rick said, incredibly marginalized. So, and then they just went down that rabbit hole that, uh, that is happening all over again with um, demonizing you know, gay people and this time around demonizing Asians. And then it, it became a disease of marginalized people. And it's, it's, it's really hor- horrific to think that this could happen again. There's so many levels where this happened. We don't have, you know, it would take us a, an entire day to, to cover all the parallels.
2: What about the future? But, what do you guys, what are your thoughts on you know, future preparation?
1: Well, I, I can quickly summarize. So the silver lining of things that went right with COVID was, um, you know, the expanded access that was pioneered by AIDS activists. Let us get, um, you know, treatments like the antiviral remdesivir and the vaccines, emergently approved quickly. We had rapid funding of research on COVID because of precedents set during the AIDS era, at the behest of AIDS activists who insisted that happen. And of course, we've got community involvement. Right now, there are political groups organizing who are from affected communities. The most notable are Marked by COVID from Kristen Urquiza's group in Arizona and the Right to Health Action, which is another group, including a lot of old AIDS activists, actually, that are working to address some of the disparities we saw in the COVID response and to build back better, which, of course, aligns with what the Biden administration has said we wanted to do.
3: And then on a global level, global HIV activists have mobilized to do exactly what they did with the HIV. You know we don't have um, vaccine availability in much, or, much of the uh, resource limited world. And so they're working on, on breaking the patents, making these things available exactly what they've been doing for the last 30 years with, with HIV treatment. So it's, uh, that's what's going to save the most lives. You know we're doing pretty well here, but the rest of the world is really hurting as we're seeing in places like India. And it's those the international activists who are really picking up the mantle and, and trying to affect change and they need support. What
0: what is the best way to deal with folks that want to interrupt things and, and have a difficulty with mask wearing and, and take getting the vaccination? What, what how do we talk to these folks? <laughs> I don't know if you can. I, I, you're the psychologist, I, I defer to you because <laughs> this is really a
3: psychological issue. You know, I mean, uh, Rick and I think in terms of you know science and uh, that's, that's
1: beyond. I worry sport. about the persuadable people in the middle and I don't worry about okay. people that are locked into their mindset.
0: That might be a good strategy. And that's all the time we have on this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about the parallels between COVID-19 and HIV AIDS with our guests, Jeff Taylor and Richard Loftus. Thank you for joining us. Thank you also to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi, DM Wynn, and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write to us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com and you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.